Good morning. As Brian just said, we're reading today from Psalm 31, if you'd like to turn and read with me. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side. As they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is God's word. Each summer, uh, we take a break from whatever uh, teaching series we're in in order to just reflect on the Psalms. We do a few every year, five to ten psalms every summer. It's a nice change of pace. And the reason, the reason I do that and ask you to put up with me in doing that every summer is because the psalms are invaluable to us. It's, it's Scripture's songbook. The Holy Spirit wanted us to have 150 prayed, composed 
songs uh, as a resource to us spiritually because the Psalms teach us how important prayer and meditation are for the Christian life. The ancient Hebrews and the ancient Christians deeply were dedicated to meditation. Not only prayer and Bible reading and hearing the Word of God spoken and preached and taught, but meditating on it. It's really become a lost discipline amongst us in our Christian culture. But meditation is, is from the Bible's perspective, meditation is chewing on, literally, that's what the Hebrew word meant, chewing on God's Word. Just letting it, letting it turn over and over and over again in your thinking. Uh, it's been actually said that meditation, from the Bible's perspective, is talking to yourself about what you discover in God's Word. And so I think it's just important to make meditation a habit in our lives. It's not enough to know the Word of God, to memorize the Word of God. These things help us. But then what do you do with it? You don't just gain information and knowledge. You must gain wisdom. You must gain courage for this world. And so that's why uh, we reflect on the Psalms, because I'm convinced we need to practice meditation in our lives about what the Bible says. Now, meditation is essential, especially because, as you know, our lives are filled with stress and anxiety. And so meditation becomes critical. That's why the psalmists meditated. Their psalms were written expressions of their meditations on the truths of God, especially for their stress and anxiety and for their conflicts. And I know we all know about conflict. The Psalms encourage us to meditate before we respond, before we react. Meditate before we respond to conflict. Uh, we've been accustomed lately to react without restraint. Uh, to respond without reflection. Now think about it. Our technology, our devices, uh, and we always have them on us and we're always connected to the World Wide Web uh, with these powerful little devices that we can put in our pockets. Uh, but we've all become accustomed to react without restraint or reflection. Technology permits us to broad, literally broadcast to everyone we know and to thousands of people we don't know through our connections uh, to broadcast our raw, unfiltered thoughts, uh, responding to conflicts without reflecting. Uh, and any of you who have done that on social media know that it brings trouble uh, every time. I know that myself. Uh, so actually, when you read David's words here, when he says in the middle of Psalm 31, because of all my adversaries, I have become an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. Because of what I've said, my friends don't want to be associated with me. So in a sense, you can say that even David's friends and allies unfriended him or, or unfollowed him because of the conflict that he found himself in. And if you react that way, if you react without reflecting, when you're pressed, when you're stressed, when you're dealing with conflict or anxiety, if that's your response, react, share, pontificate before you think, before you reflect, before you meditate. I'm telling you, you're missing out on a fundamental joy, a fundamental attitude and discipline that the God of, Bi the, God of the Bible offers you.
And I believe it is Christ-centered, Bible-driven meditation. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. We're going to see how David did it, uh, at least in Psalm 31. And what I hope you're going to see is that God is a refuge. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. We just sang Martin Luther's words. And David said, well, I'm kind of paraphrasing what David's saying. God is a refuge to those who run to him and abandon other fortresses. You got to do both. God's a refuge to those who run to him and abandon the fortresses that they've previously trusted in. And what I want to talk about today is the refuge that God is. And the refuge, a little bit different, the refuge that God provides us. And finally, the refuge that God himself surrendered. The refuge that God is, the refuge that he provides, and the refuge that God surrendered. Let's start with the refuge that God is. David says that God is a refuge to him, that he's like a fortress, like an armory, and like an infirmary, military language. God was David's fortress, his refuge, and his conflicts. When you look at Psalm 31, you see that it's composed from the perspective of someone with military enemies. Somebody also with political adversaries, and both were true of David for much of his adult life. God was his fortress from his conflicts, he says in verses 2 and 3. Near the beginning, he, he says to God, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Now, we know from David's life in the historical books of the Old Testament that he had physical strength. He was able to fend off predators when he was a young shepherd. We know from uh, the history of his life that he had effective weaponry and he used it as a young shepherd and as a man, as a military leader. We also know that as a king, David had advisors and allies and he had something none of us have, most of us don't have, civil authority. He's a king. He had all of these at his, expo at, his, at his disposal, and yet David psychologically found his stability in God. We know that David employed weapons. He consulted with advisors, but he trusted God. That's important to see. So he leans on God in his struggle and in his anxiety and in his conflict, and he says, God is my refuge. God is my fortress. But he also says that God was like an infirmary to him. So you get into the fortress, you get safe, and then there's a place to get, there's, you got to find triage, right? Within the fortress. God was like an infirmary of healing for David's wounds from his conflicts. And so he says in verse seven, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You've seen my affliction. You know the distress of my soul. It reminds me of, of the young woman Hagar in Genesis 16 when she's alone and starving and pregnant in the desert and God meets her and ministers to her and Hagar names God and he call, he, she calls God the living one who sees me. And as, and as Hagar many centuries before David discovered, David now expresses that it is therapeutic, it is restorative to know that you're not invisible and that you're not alone in whatever you're facing. That has a healing impact on your soul. 
it mentally and physically even restores you to know that you're not alone and that someone sees you in your distress. Not only does David consider God to be his fortress and his infirmary, but he even says that God is basically his armory. Think about it, a storage facility of weapons right there in the fortress itself. He goes there, he gets shelter, his wounds are bandaged up, and right there, right there for when he goes back out, there's an armory of weapons for him. But look at this. Look at verse 19. He says, oh, how abundant is your goodness. See, see, there you go. The abundance of goodness. He says, your goodness, which you have stored up, there's the armory, stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. Now, this is interesting. Within God's fortress are stored weapons not to use against his enemies. It's a different kind of weaponry. The weapons that are stored up in God's armory, according to David here, are proofs of God's goodness. These are the weapons that you fight for enemies within you. It was the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 who said something similar when he said, it's not against flesh and blood that we're fighting. It's against spiritual powers in heavenly places. Uh, you don't even know who your true adversaries are, Paul said, and you need to be equipped with God's armor. Uh, and, and this is the armory that David's referring to here, the blessings, the abundance of knowing personally God's goodness and steadfast love for you. And this is what the believer fights with against the influences, both mental, psychological, spiritual, that cause a person to doubt and then to despair and to give up. Because some of you know that um, the battle is lost in the mind before it's lost on the field. Unless you train your mind to meditate on the truth and goodness of God, as David is making himself do here. So really in a synopsis of these three ideas, fortress, infirmary, armory, David basically meditates on this. God is good and he sees me and he loves me. God is good and he sees me and he heals me. Now notice here, David's exercising both his reason, his rational capacity, and engaging his emotions. This is very important. He's using basic logic. God has protect, protected me before. He's going to get me through this, right? So faith is not leaving your mind at the door, not the faith the Bible talks about. It's rational, and it engages his emotions because he's filled with a desire to follow this God back into battle because he knows that God loves him and that God sees him. And by this, this balance of reason and emotion, it all comes from meditation. It's in his meditation that David gains comfort and confidence. And it's by meditation and prayer based on the truth of God that David, David is able to find refuge in conflict. Now, this is all military language, and I know that only a few of you can relate to it as of being, being in con, combat yourself. Uh, for a lot of us, we have to figure out another way to apply this personally. How do you apply this? That God can be a refuge for you. 
I want to apply it actually in our personal relational conflicts. That's where I want to go with this. God provides the same presence and protection and healing to you in your conflicts. Whatever kind of conflict you're facing, God can be a refuge as well. He can provide a sense of refuge for you as you meditate, like David did, like the saints of old did, as you meditate on what you know is true about God by what you find in his holy word, in the Bible. And as you read it, and as you hear it, and as you have conversations with yourself and conversations with one another about the truth of God. And and here's a very practical way to meditate. It's one of the best, it is the best, and the simplest type uh, uh, approach to meditation that I've ever heard. And I've heard it in more than one place, but basically here is what you do to meditate on the truth of God. Of course, you read the Bible, you hear it. You hear it preached, you hear it spoken, you read it yourself, you even memorize it, you reflect upon it. Don't read too much all at once because you'll get lost. Focus on just a bit of it so that you can actually meditate. And this is what it looks like. You ask yourself, this is just one way to do it, but if you've never done it before, start here. After reading the word of God, this is how you chew on it. Ask yourself three questions. And however long it takes you to respond to these questions, whether it takes you five minutes or five days, it doesn't matter. You're still meditating. You're chewing on the truth of God. Ask yourself, what is God revealing to me about himself? Maybe just do Psalm 30, read Psalm 31. And med- what is God saying to me about himself that I must comprehend and know? The second question is, ask yourself, what is God revealing to me about myself? What do I need to know about myself, about the human condition, as it applies to me specifically, my behavior, my actions, my recent history? And then the third question is, what then is my appropriate response? If all of this is true about God and about me, then how should I respond? What is God calling me to do or say? In a sense, meditation in your conflict is very practically running to God as your refuge. This is one of the simplest ways that we can run to God in our conflict and trust in him and not something else is meditate. And you can do that by asking these simple questions just as one way. Reflecting on God's nature, reflecting on his ways, reflecting on his promises as David has done. And in doing that, you have a fortress. You have an infirmary, you have an armory, and in that fortress is a mighty commander, and in that armory is a skilled and compassionate medic, and in that, um, no, he's in the infirmary. You understood what I meant. In the infirmary is a skilled, compassionate medic, but in that armory is, is like a super cunning intelligence analyst. And, and as you do this, as it, as it becomes your habit, because you know what happens when something becomes a habit, you begin to do it involuntarily. It just becomes the way you respond to things. As meditation becomes your habit, you'll be able to say what people like Psalm 56, a composer, Psalm 118, and the writer of Hebrews 13 said, what can man do to me? That phrase... And that belief 
is the result of meditation. And so Psalm 31 has been quoted and recycled throughout time. If you read Psalm 71, the beginning of Psalm 71 almost word for word mimics the beginning of Psalm 31. The prophet Jeremiah, in the midst of his stress, quoted this psalm. Even Jonah, from the gut of the whale, quoted this psalm. As a matter of fact, the medieval Czech reformer, uh, uh, church reformer Jan Hus, uh, quoted verse 5 by saying, while he was being burned at the stake for his religious convictions, he said, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. These instances reflect the reason and the emotions of people who were trained by meditation. So you treat God as your refuge by meditating before you respond in your stress, when you're pressed, especially in your conflicts. And let it become your habit to meditate on God's truth before you react and formulate a plan. Most times, you don't have to respond in a split second when we're talking about relational conflict. So treat God as your refuge by meditation in conflict. And meditation forces you, as the psalm concludes in verse 24, to wait. As he says to the saints, wait for the Lord. Take heart, take courage, and wait for the Lord. When you're meditating, it makes you stop and wait. But you have to ask yourself, we have to ask ourselves, is, is, instead of waiting, do we rely on unhealthy strategies and habits? Ask yourself this week, what are my unhealthy strategies and default habits that I rely on, that I run to as refuges in my conflict? David says in verse 6, some uncomfortable words, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Now, that type of language makes us uncomfortable because we are very sensitive to hate speech in our society, and rightly so. Uh, Though this phrase, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord, though that makes us uncomfortable, we need to remember this is a prayer. This isn't a Twitter tweet. Uh, This isn't isn't a talking head on cable news. This is a man praying to his creator about his hatred. This is somebody going to God with the most dangerous of human emotions. It's just the opposite of the type of internal brooding that produces hate speech. The type of internal godless brooding, self turned in on itself brooding that produces actions of hate. It's just the opposite of that. It's when we surrender our strongest, darkest emotions in prayer and meditation to our creator that those emotions, that those feelings, that those compulsions are actually exposed to the light of our creator. And as we expose our strongest, most dangerous emotions, even if they're good even if they're because of righteous indignation, when we expose those to our creator, they are exposed to the light of God's holiness, which transforms our thinking by humility into productivity. 
And now in humble confession, keep reading what David says. Don't just, don't just sound bite David here. Keep going on and look at verse 10 where David in humble confession says, my strength fails because of my iniquity. He's saying that his conflict and stress is not just the result of outside foes and enemies, but because of his own sinful, wicked actions. How many conflicts, how many conflicts would you and I avoid or resolve if we were to stop trusting in worthless idols? Now, maybe you don't bow down to little golden images like David's neighbors did, but we, we, we practice idolatry in different ways. And here's the simplest way that we pay regard, pay close attention to worthless idols. We all have habits of response that we rely on when we're in conflict. Maybe family background, maybe personal temperament, whatever it is, we respond immediately by default and sometimes make matters worse. And so in a sense, your fortress in conflict, your refuge in conflict becomes what you habitually do and think and say whenever you're pressed. In general, we're all either fighters or escapists. We're, 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 we're either combat assault specialists or we're escape artists by default, left to our own devices. And typically fighters, when they're pressed in conflict, they look for, they become argumentative. They debate, they try and win. They find refuge in an argumentative spirit or litigious attacks, either verbally or legally or even physically. And what fighters look for in conflict is a victory. They want to win. Escapists are a bit different. Sometimes they look more holy, they look more self-controlled, but they're not. Their hearts are the same, bent on themselves. Escapists, when we escape, what we're really doing is we're looking for a deceptive scheme to get what we want. Half-truths, dishonesty, manipulation, a stoic response to make it look like sticks and stones can't break our bones, words can't harm us, and we're not affected. We're looking to escape. Whether you're in a fighter by default, uh, or you know, whether you're a fighter or an escapist by default, uh, how's that working for you? The result is the conflict that you're living through. The result is the conflict that we are all facing on a regular basis and the emotions that rage within us, that cause us to speak and act and make decisions, that, as David said, destroy our bodies and our minds. We just take a, a spark and we fan it into an uncontrollable flame, a forest fire, because of sometimes how we respond, either in fighting or escaping. But as our reason and as our emotions are trained by meditating on the truth of God, and in prayer, fighters begin to find that they can be calm, that they can wait, because God is their refuge. And escapists begin to find through prayer and meditation that they can be courageous, that they can speak, that they can act, because God is their refuge. That's how we get out of this downward spiral of hate speech and acts of hatred when we see that something's wrong. So 
the greatest conflict of all was the, according to the Bible, the greatest conflict of all is the conflict that you and I had against our creator because we were born his sworn enemies with a complete spiritual disposition against him to doubt him, to not trust him. The Bible says that is the biggest conflict of all eternity, the conflict between our creator and us as a human race and each of us individually. But the Bible says that in order to resolve that conflict, God surrendered something. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, surrendered his glory, his strength, and the safety of his triune unity with his heavenly Father and with his Spirit from all eternity. That's the refuge that Jesus Christ surrendered to reconcile you to God. Jesus walked among us, he taught us, he loved us, and in that spirit of love, he exposed, truthfully but gently, he exposed the worthless systems that our hearts crave. Whatever we turn to to respond to our our impending death, whatever we turn to to respond to the weakness of our bodies, to the brokenness in ourselves, to the brokenness in our relationships, Jesus exposed in truth and love the worthless, vain systems that we've used as default responses to living in a life of conflict. He surrendered the refuge in eternity with his heavenly Father. And when he was on the cross, he committed the most selfless act of surrender, giving all of that up, giving up his own body, giving up his own life. And we discover that in history, yet again, Psalm 31 verse 5 was quoted from a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem when Jesus cried out with his last breath. The gospel of Luke tells us the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so we discover that Christ surrendered his own eternal refuge so that we would finally have a refuge. John Calvin said that when Christ uttered those words in dying desperation to his heavenly Father, when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he did that, he not only entrusted himself to his heavenly, his heavenly Father, he entrusted you to God the Father. John Calvin said at that moment, Christ became the guardian for all of our souls. He was dying for you, and when he entrusted himself to his heavenly Father, he entrusted you to God the Father and literally made God your refuge, whether you wanted it or not, whether you're looking for it or not, the Lord Jesus in his dying breath made God your refuge. So stop running to other refuges. Stop running to other fortresses. They will do nothing for you of any long-lasting significance. In your prayer and meditation, forsake and confess and repent of all the schemes and vain idols that you have been turning to to try and get along with people or ignore or avoid or win conflict. And finally, for once in your life and forever, rely in Christ as your refuge because he loves you and he's always gonna show you the truth. He loves you too much to lie to you. What if in your conflict, what if in our conflicts we would run to God 
in meditation and response. Taking the advice of the Apostle Peter, who said in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 4, as a follow-up to what we read of his in 1 Peter chapter 2 earlier today, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, put another word in there, therefore, let those who struggle in conflict according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And you, for whom Christ died, have such a refuge in him that even in your conflicts, you can, like him, trust your heavenly father when surrounded by your enemies. And like Jesus Christ, you will do and habitually think this way and do these very actions that the rest of the world looks at and goes, what in the world is he doing I have never seen anyone do what she's doing like Jesus in the midst of your enemies. You forgive them. And you lay yourself down for your enemies. And that is the power and the wisdom of God for your conflicts. If you're a Christian and Jesus resolved our conflict with God the way he did, you think you're going to find a different way to resolve conflict? Embrace it. Because if he is your refuge, you will be able to make sacrifices. You will be able to forgive your enemies because it is only in that that true life is achieved. God is a refuge to those who run to him and abandon other fortresses. Meditate on the fortresses that you have worshiped in your conflict that are not God your refuge and repent of it and he loves you. And he will open up, he will open up the mighty walls, the comfortable faces, uh, spaces of his fortress to you, for you to find the healing that you need, for you to equip yourself with the abundance of his steadfast love for you, that you will be able to fight against the enemies of your spiritual enemy so that you do not give up, so that you do not despair, so that you do not lose hope, and you will become my friends, peacemakers. Though your foes may seem greater than you, though your trials may seem too great for you, God sees you. And because he sees you, he will protect you, and he protects you because he loves you. He doesn't promise that you'll come out unscathed. This is a battle, friends. But he promises you himself. And he will never leave you or forsake you. So stop running to your worthless coping habits. Let's stop doing that. And by meditation, let us make our God the rock, the mighty fortress, our refuge. Let's pray. Father, as an act of faith right now, we run to you. We cling to you in our adversity. We cling to you not only in our disease and sickness and unemployment, and frustration, we come to you even in our conflicts. We come to you in the way that, that, that we feel because of how we've hurt others, because of how they've hurt us. We don't claim to have all the wisdom and the skill to resolve and restore every relationship in this lifetime, but we do look to Jesus, the one who died while forgiving his enemies, who entrusted himself to you, and we ask you, Lord, to be gracious to us and give us the faith to trust you. Lord, would you teach us even in our anxiety and conflict how to meditate 
on the abundance of your steadfast love that we discover in your word. And Lord, encourage us when we get discouraged to find one another so that we can speak the truth to each other in love even when we forget. In the name of our great Savior, Jesus, our mighty fortress, amen.